We're going to be in Zechariah chapter 7 tonight. Take your Bibles and turn there. I'll have you stand in a few moments. Zechariah chapter 7. Thank you all for being here this evening. Really appreciate that. And you guys just did a tremendous job. That was as good of a selection of songs I've heard in a long time. I really enjoyed those. Songs that have a good message and minister to us. Um, we really like those here, so thank you. It's a wonderful, wonderful job. Appreciate you taking the time, and uh, just want to commend you for that. For our young people considering a college in the future, I think especially if you're looking at a liberal arts education, Pensacola is something that ought to be high on your list. Um, I, I think that you are doing an excellent job there, as evidenced by the young people here tonight. And uh, anyway, just really appreciate that. I, I'm not really sure what Daniel was insinuating about the, the service may go long and not have time for the prayer request tonight. I, I'm not sure if I'm garnering a reputation for being longer or not, but anyway, we'll see what happens this evening. We're going to study the Minor Prophets on Wednesday nights. We are in the book of Zechariah. We've made our way through Zechariah's visions, of which there were eight, and now Zechariah has a number of oracles. Oracles would be uh, what we might call a word from the Lord, something that the Lord impresses upon His heart to speak to the people. And so now we'll have a number of those. In context, chapters 7 and 8 really go together, although we'll just take chapter 7 tonight and uh, examine that. So if you don't mind, let me ask you to stand. We'll get right to this evening. Remember, Zechariah, along with Haggai, were two Old Testament prophets who ministered to the post-exile community. So these men spoke and ministered to really a group of about 50,000 Jews who had returned home after being in Babylonian captivity. The greater number of Jews still in the land of Shinar, Babylon had not returned yet, but this initial entourage of people had come back with really the commission of building, rebuilding the temple. And so Zechariah's encouragement along with Haggai was to keep up the work, keep building. And so his message tonight is really to continue to do that to this group tonight. Um, the people are about halfway through in rebuilding the temple. And so then this particular message is communicated. Chapter 7 of the book of Zechariah. And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius, that's the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah in the fourth day of the ninth month, even in Chislu. When they had sent unto the house of God, Sherazer and Remagilek, forgive me there, and their men to pray before the Lord. And to speak unto the priests which were in the house of the Lord of hosts, and the prophet saying, Should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years? To paraphrase that, they're asking, Should we keep fasting as we have done since uh, our people have been in captivity? You're back here, you're in the temple, should we keep on fasting uh, to see God's wrath and judgment, his chastisement come to an end? And so Zechariah says in response to this question, verse 4, Then came the word of the Lord of hosts unto me, saying, Speaking to all the people of the land and to the priests, saying, When ye fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those seventy years, did you at all fast unto me, even to me? And when you did eat and when you did drink, did not ye eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Should you not hear... The words which the Lord hath cried by the former prophets, when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity, and the cities there round about her, when men inhabited the south and the plain. 
Now, he may be referring most specifically to the time of Isaiah, when Isaiah had a word about fasting to the people as well. Verse 8, And the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment, and show mercy and compassions every man to his brother. And oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. But they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts hath sent in his spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. And he's speaking here specifically of the time in captivity in Babylon. Therefore it has come to pass that as he cried and they would not hear, so they cried and I would not hear, saith the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations whom they knew not, again referring to the captivity, thus the land was desolate after them, that no man passed through nor returned, and they laid the pleasant land desolate. Our Holy Father, I pray the next few moments as we Lord, consider your word that, Lord, you might help us to understand what you said to these people in their time and context. And then, Lord, I pray then you'd help us to make application. And so, Lord, we need your help with this. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for standing for that length of time. Really appreciate it. Zechariah chapter 7 brings us to a new section in the prophet's ministry to the post-exile Jewish community that is now residing once again in Jerusalem. For nearly 70 years has passed since Jerusalem has been destroyed, remember, by the Babylonians in judgment by God for the people's idolatry in their wayward heart um, in not looking to God in the covenant relationship that they had promised to be in. Some time ago we talked about the word hased, and hased was the word that was used for the relationship between God and His people. And that was a relationship of love and kindness, one of, of um, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so the people broke that covenant. They, they went after false gods. They, they, they chose selfishness. They, just, um, they, they walked away from the Lord. And so in judgment for years and years and decades of, of that behavior, God sent them into captivity as is referenced by the last verse of our text tonight. A remnant now had come home and the Jews were a little over two years in the rebuilding project of re-erecting the temple which, by the way, was their very first priority in coming back home. Wasn't one of their homes, wasn't reestablishment of the city, it wasn't the city walls that'd be done later by the man Nehemiah. The first priority was come back and reestablish the epicenter of our nation, the focal point where we meet with God, and that was the temple. This is the place where they would worship. Again, it was the center of their city and their nation. Persia, of course, now the predominant world power under King Darius, and we've rehearsed some of that history, had years earlier overthrown the Babylonians. And in a political move to appease some of the uprisings that were happening in the Persian Empire, and really operating in a different kind of geopolitical paradigm, Darius decided to send some political groups or um, people groups back to their homeland. There'd been, the Jews were just one of many nations that had been taken to captivity by the Babylonians in the years before. And so Darius had allowed many of these people to go back to their homelands. 50,000 Jews made the initial first trip back home from Babylon. 
and they were in charge of the rebuilding project. These men came home under the leadership of Zerubbabel, which we remember was a descendant of David, who became the governor of the region, and also a man named Joshua, who was a descendant of the high priest Aaron. And so you had these two men in charge, a descendant of David. He would not ever ascend to a kingdom, but he would be a governor. And Joshua, these two men were the leaders of this 50,000 people. Um, they led this charge back home, and they were like we might call the, the forward group for all the Jewish people to come back and reestablish their homeland. Hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of other Jews were still displaced, as is described in this verse, not just in Babylon, but when, when Babylon destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the nation, they, they really just scattered everyone. And many people, the poorest of the people, stayed back home um, and were dispersed a lot in the regions of Samaria and, and thereabouts. And so there was great trepidation in coming back home. We spent some time talking about this. These 50,000 had faith and courage, and they had faith in Zerubbabel and Joshua, but lots of people were reluctant. And they were they're reluctant because they understood that, first of all, just the journey back was dangerous. Once they got there, they knew that in the vacuum of them being gone, other groups had moved into Jerusalem and established that as, as their home. They knew there'd be opposition and fighting to regain their place there. They had scant resources. There wasn't a lot there. Um, and they, they really weren't sure maybe even the disposition of, of Darius, whether he would recall them back home. There was just a, a lot of trepidation in going back, not to mention that many of these people had built lives for themselves. It had been 70 years. Literally two generations of people had grown up knowing nothing really but Babylon as their home. And so suddenly to pack up and go back to a place that many of these people had never been was a little bit scary to them. And so they, uh, they persisted anyway and came back home. And so this is why the, the preaching of Zechariah and Haggai was so important to provide encouragement to these people to continue the task. And there was a couple times that the people stopped. They got off target. They got off course. One time just to rebuild their own homes and other times because of just discouragement. And so through the preaching of these two prophets, the people, though, did continue. At this point, they are two and a half years in the rebuilding project. The temple's coming along. It looked nothing like it did before. The former glory would never be recovered of Solomon's temple, but functionally, the temple was coming along. And for two years, these prophets have been encouraging this to complete and finish the work. So the prophets spurred them on, but the prophets also played another role besides just the encouragement to finish the work. Through their preaching and their visions, they encouraged the people to genuinely repent of the lifestyle that originally um, got the nation into the predicament they were in. Okay? So, remember, 70 years earlier, the people were being disciplined for their waywardness, their idolatry. The nation is conquered. Um, they're taken to Babylon. And these people begin now to understand a little bit about the preaching from Jeremiah that day. And, but these people, um, they're not saints, okay? They've been in Babylon for 70 years. Their character is not perfected. Um, they, they are not, well, they have learned some lessons in Babylon. Some things came to light about who they were, uh, really through Jeremiah's letters. These were people who still were fundamentally um, in need of growth and change and, and, and greater understanding of what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. And so these men encouraged them to continue to grow and follow the Lord. 
But the sins of humanity still plagued them. And so while they had learned some important lessons about idolatry, their ethics and character were still incomplete. Again, so this is the situation in which Zechariah 7 um, is, is situated. A contingency of men arrived um, in our text, and, and we know this more information. I'm not reading chapter 8 tonight, but we learned that a contingency of men in our verse, first few verses, arrived most likely from Samaria. Um, and this is really what happens in chapter 7. So they're rebuilding the, the temple, um, Zerubbabel, Joshua's there, Zechariah's present, and all of a sudden they see in the distance these men coming. Um, most likely, for chapter 8, they come from a region called Bethel, which would have been Samaria. And so they come, and they arrive in the temple. They've heard probably for a couple years now that a contingency of the Jews have come back home, they'll rebuild the temple. They were somewhat aware through Daniel's teachings that 70 years would have to expire. They're looking at their clocks going, their calendars. Well, it's really close to 70 years. It's actually 69 right now. And so we have a question. And the question is really this, is this all over? Is God's punishment finished? Um, are, are the 70 years complete? Now the question is even more specific than that. The question is really this. Hey, Zechariah, um, there went out a decree decades ago that we should fast and pray in the fifth and seventh month of every year, um, asking God to end his chastisement upon our people. So here's the picture. We've been fasting every year, twice, two times in a year in these two months. And can we stop? Okay, you with me on the question? They're asking the question, can we stop fasting? Can we stop weeping? Can we stop going through these motions that we think might appease God so things can be back to normal? And uh, evidently, since the city had been destroyed, there had been some kind of national call to fast to turn away God's wrath. And they fasted in hopes that their time of suffering would end. This is such a way that people live. So, times are hard, and in hard times, that tends to bring out the best of our spirituality, doesn't it? You know, so, and it's not that it's self-serving, but it kind of is. In other words, you know, when times are good, like in Isaiah, no one really cares what God's doing, but now times are bad, we're going to fast and pray, and we want, you know, the idea is we're, we're fasting so we no longer have to suffer. Okay, now that's okay, that's fair. But that's certainly not all God wants from their activities. And so this group of people ask, you know, is it over? Can we, can we truly safely come back home? So Zechariah hears this question, can we stop fasting? And so amazingly, the Lord speaks to him. You know, just the perfect time for the Lord to speak. And this oracle comes, this message from God comes, this special revelation from God, something that he wants, the Lord wants Zechariah to say to the people. And so in verse 5 it says, speaking to all the people of the land. And it's amazing here what the Lord does. The Lord answers a question with a question. And his question is basically this. So uh, what was the purpose of your fasting? What were you fasting for and who were you fasting to? He said, when you fasted and you mourned for these past 70 years, 
and he goes back in history now, he's the question. He asks this, was it any different than the kind of fasting that was rebuked by the former prophets? You with me what he's saying? Okay. Brother Brian comes up to me and says, Pastor, I've been fasting for 69 years, can we stop? Okay. And so I said, hold on, Brian. Lord, what do you want me to say? Lord, tell me what to say. Hey, Brian, have you really been fasting to the Lord at all? What's the reason for your fasting? This, this is the exchange that's taking place right here. What is it that you think you have been doing? And, and by the way, there was a group of people who had a very similar question, and Isaiah answered their question, and really I'm going to answer it the same way. So take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 58. Isaiah, chapter 58. In Isaiah 58, the people come before the Lord, they come before Isaiah, and they ask this question, hey, we've been fasting and nothing's happening here. Why, why is the Lord, um, you know, blessing us even more because of our fasting? This was a time when the Jews were prosperous, the city was secure, but the people were merely religious. They were going through routine and ritual. The truth was, okay, look up here, they were going to church but their hearts really weren't with the Lord. They went to church but lived like the world. It was just something that they did. So God points out that in Isaiah, there was something the Lord said. So look there with me. In verse number three of chapter 58, the people ask, Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? These people ask us of God. Behold, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exact all your labors. So what's God saying? Well, you're fasting, but I'm watching you and nothing's changing after your fast. In other words, I, I, see, I see what you're doing, but I don't see any change in you, is what he's saying. Verse 4, behold, you fast for strife and debate and to smite with the fist of wickedness. You shall not fast as you do this day to make your voice be heard on high. Or you can't go through this religious routine and not change and expect me to listen and hear. That's not what this is about. Verse 5, is it such a fast that I have chosen a man to simply afflict his soul? He's like, I'm not asking you to put on sackcloth and ash and all of a sudden after that everything's going to be okay. You're missing the point. Is it just a bow that his head is a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will thou call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? So these people are coming and saying, Lord, we're fasting, but you're not really blessing us. The Lord's saying, you're going through these motions, you're bowing your head, you're covering yourself with ashes, then you get up and you go live like you did before. Like this is nothing but religious ritual. There's no heart in this. There's, there's no change. There's no repentance. There's no self-introspection. There's nothing that I want to see. All you really want is for the difficulties you're experiencing to go away. You're not fasting to truly seek me. So verse 6, he says, here's what I want to happen. Is not this the fast that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, that thou hast bring the poor that are cast out to thy house, when thou seest the naked that thou cover him? And they hide not thyself from thine own flesh? Okay, now stop. Because this is interesting. God's saying, 
What I want to see when you fast and after your fast is that evidence of a changed heart that acts in this way. In other words, I want to see that you've examined your heart and your relationship with me, and as a result, you go out and you treat people this way, and you interact with others in the way that I'm suggesting. A true fast should, should lead to a true change of behavior. That's the kind of fast that God can bless. True contrition isn't just self-denial and tears, but it's repentance and a changed life. And he says in verse 5, your idea of fasting and repentance are all wrong. So in verse 6, he tells him his idea. In verse 7, his idea of change. Okay, now I want you to get this. This is important for us tonight. In that your relationship with me will be reflected by the relationship that you have with people. Okay, now that's just eminently simple, isn't it? And practical. Your relationship with me will be evidenced by the way that you treat and behave with other people, both yourselves and the people in the larger world. This text is about, now forgive the term for a moment, is about social justice. It's about social reform. It's about eliminating poverty. It is about helping the vulnerable. And God says, when you act in ways that serve those purposes, well, then I know that your fast was actually meaningful. Back in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 5, he said, I've seen your fast, and it wasn't for me, and it wasn't for any other purpose than you just going through routine, and all you want is the elimination of a problem, but you don't really want a close relationship with me. And so now in verse 8, he basically says that. In verse 8, he has a second oracle, second word from the Lord, and it comes. And now he basically echoes Isaiah's words in chapter 58. In verse 9, here's what he says of Zechariah 7. Do you know what I want from you? I don't want just tears and sackcloth and ashes. I want you to execute judgment. I want you to show mercy. I want you to be compassionate. I, I don't want you to oppress or take advantage of the vulnerable anymore. I want you to take care of the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. And I want you to stop having evil thoughts about other people. There was a time when you were prosperous, and this same message was preached, but you wouldn't do it. You turned your shoulder, you stopped your ears, and you, you made your heart as an adamant stone. You wouldn't listen. You went through your routines, you went to church every Sunday, but nothing in your life ever changed, and it was never evidenced by any help to people like I'm talking about tonight. So what I do, verse 13, I just tunes you out. If you're not going to do what I ask, and you're just going to go through relig religious ritual, God says, I'm, you close your ears, mine are shut. I, I'm not going to listen. And then, of course, in verse 14, he says, because of that behavior, I'm going to scatter you. And, of course, 70 years ago, he did that. So here's what Zechariah is suggesting. The captivity may indeed be over, but your hearts have not changed. The circumstance that created 
the captivity have not changed. Listen, so not only does the temple need further repair, so too does your heart. Now, I think there's some really important thoughts here for us in terms of application. And as is always the case, my points are long, so I need you to listen. <clears throat> Don't write, just listen, and then you can write later. The first thought is this, the Lord, our Lord, will always be displeased or find unsatisfactory any expression of worship that lacks sincerity of heart or does not lead us to a closer walk with Him. It's a mouthful, but I want you to get it. The Lord's going to reject any expression of worship from us that does not come from a sincere heart or evidence itself in the ways that He is suggesting that it should evidence itself in the text tonight. So if I come in here and we sing these songs and I raise my hand and I get on my knees and I walk out that door and I'm still mad at you, God says it won't work. If I come in here and give my tithe and I teach Sunday school class and I, I go through my routines and I, walk, I drive right out of here, walk by someone in need, think some, you know, um, man on the road to Jericho, and I look at that indifferently, the Lord's going to suggest you just wasted an hour of your time a little bit ago. If in your life there's no place to help the widow, the oppressed, the orphan, the alien, the immigrant, if, there's, if, if you don't have any heart to help the people that I came to expressly help, then I don't know what you're doing in that church, but it's not accomplishing much. And I'll probably just find it unsatisfactory. In Isaiah 58, in both Zechariah 7 and 8, he made this clear. Fasting, weeping, expressions of contrition, minus any accompanied heart move or change in lifestyle of abiding by this relationship of said. Well, that just won't work. The Lord wants us to do things that lead us to a renewed, changed heart. It's easy for you and I just go to go through a routine of forced, expected religious practice. Sometimes we, we, we do the religious thing we do because we're supposed to. Or, you know, we only pray when we have to. And that's not wrong, by the way. And if that's a great place to start, that's fine, but then it should continue past the difficulty. But God intends fasting, religious expressions of worship, to help, the purpose is to help us evaluate our relationship with Him and then to do something about that. Okay, so we, we sing these songs Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night. And so, you know, I, I, I've encouraged this, and I, I understand the difficulty of this. When, when you grow up with this, you hear it every week. I, I understand. But at some point, we have to engage our brains and say, what am I singing? Or else I promise you this, it's just air. 
It's not bad air. It's just air. Can it, so how often are we guilty of that? We hear a sermon and once in a while someone will say, hey, that, that, that was a help. And I want to say, are you sure you don't mean that was interesting? Yeah. <laughs> or that was a cool point? I'm not being mean. I'm asking us to think. Or even that, you know, you spit a few times, that was entertaining. You know, you got mad, red face, whatever else. I, but then we walk out the doors and we're not any different. I, I'm not against routine. I'm not against ritual. It's just we have to understand that sometimes we're not careful. These things that we do all the time can lose their meaning. So I, I look at Jesse and I said, Jesse, find us some new songs. Not more contemporary songs, nothing like that. Just songs that'll make us maybe think again. That might be not so familiar that we have to actually consider what we're singing. The hard work of, during the preaching that it's kind of like not just, I'm not here as an entertainer, but I'm standing here as a mirror saying, how are we measuring up here? And does this have any, any real impact on our hearts? God intends for fasting and religious expression of worship to change us, to move us. In the Old Testament, many times the people were told to fast as a sign of contrition. But contrition was supposed to lead to genuine repentance, then a change of heart and habit. Again, true said. This is a word we've explored many times, a, a right relation with God of love and loyalty. It's, the word literally means loving kindness between the two people in the covenant, and, and as God intends, loving kindness between me and you, me and others. Do we have compassion and loving kindness in our hearts? Which leads me to thought number two. And I'm going to use this term. Social justice was and is the expression God is looking for as a sign of our covenant faithfulness to Him. Amen. That's good. Okay. I understand we have a lot of political conservatives here. And social justice doesn't have to be an evil phrase. I understand the political charge with that but get over it because God was kind of first here. Social justice today is infused with political tension as it's related to the redistribution of wealth and opportunity for all people, which by the way is an idea, isn't bad. But in the Bible, social justice was about those in power and with resources withholding them from other people who could have used them and needed them. It was the failure in helping and protecting the vulnerable and the needy from social and economic despair. And God says, that's not okay with me. You're not being good to people that you could be good to who stand in need. In the text, there are four specific vulnerable populations. Now, I want you to think about it. the widow. What's a widow? It's someone who lacks, in this world, anyone to provide for them economically. A support structure. It's not there. The orphan, obviously, lacks an economic support structure. The alien, the immigrant, lacks a social and economic support system. The poor lacks an economic support system. 
I understand in modernity, those, okay, I can take away the, f the first three. Tell you, like identifying what is poor and what is not, I know it can be confusing, but I think we may be trying too hard there to make some distinctions. I understand if a man won't eat, he shouldn't work, but forgive me, that can be seriously overplayed as an excuse for doing nothing for anyone ever. Do a Bible study. God has always commanded his people to play a role in helping, helping the vulnerable of our community. Jesus said, I'm coming for that purpose, to bind up the brokenhearted. I, I, I'm coming to, what was his entire ministry about when he wasn't preaching? It was helping people who were in vulnerable situations. Every, almost every single one of them. The Lord is about helping people in their social and economic and physical distresses. Not every time, you know, he handed them a gospel track where he'd help them. Okay, I'm not against that, but that wasn't necessarily, a, you know, had to be predicated on that. We might get a different response from people if we did them a courtesy and then handed them a gospel track. But that's another thought. When people with wealth extort the poor, with people in power take advantage of those who have no power, even when we just as good people withhold kindness and goodness from those who need it, well, God is displeased. Again, think the Good Samaritan. In the book of Micah, this is rehearsed. It's rehearsed a thousand times, a thousand places. He has showed thee, O man, what is good, what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, treat other people right, and to love mercy, show compassion to people who need it, and then, of course, to walk humbly with thy God. The modern-day evangelical world and, and in fundamental circles We've made the term social gospel a negative, feeling that some have substituted social service for evangelism. And I would say, okay, there's some merit there. There's probably some truth there. But the gospel itself is disserviced and even mocked if we void our service of any social kindness or help. It's okay if you agree with me. It's okay if we do that. So we're advocating a social gospel. No, I'm saying a gospel void of a heart to help people is pretty much worthless. To neglect the plight of humanity is a complete failure to understand the gospel. What do you think the gospel is about? Helping the plight of humanity, spiritually. And then that's not the sum total of our plight. Jesus' mission was to heal the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds, Psalms 147.3. If we just consider the life of Christ, he preached and taught and talked about truth, and he ministered in real and tangible ways to hurting people. And he told us to go and do, what's the word? Likewise. 
Attending church is about transforming our lives into holy vessels that are to be accompanied by good works. By righting wrongs, helping the oppressed, feeding the poor, and helping people who are less fortunate than ourselves. I, I, I don't mean to be or sound aggressive, but can we identify those occurrences in our life, in our, in our Christian testimony? Come to church, um, you know, transform your character by the renewing of your mind. Be morally good. Be ethical. You know, clean up. And don't forget about people. In other words, if all we're doing is here is patting each other on the back and, you know, working to improve our look, and we have no heart of compassion for anything outside the walls of East Baptist Church, I'm telling you, we are missing the mark. And I, I don't know always how to institutionalize these things. You know what I mean by that? I mean, if you're waiting for me to come up with a program that helps you go do that, like a bus route or a clothing ministry or whatever else, that's okay. But how about trying to own that on your own? The Good Samaritan wasn't necessarily acting out of a program. He just saw a need and did something about it. Okay? I think maybe a great outworking of Zechariah 7 would be for us to ask the Lord for more sensitive hearts on how we can actually show the sincerity of our faith by doing the same thing the Lord did. And that was not just helping the people in their greatest need, yes, salvation, but again, um, Jesus' good works were done often first and then the gospel was told so people had a heart to listen. Maybe we'd see more people one to Christ if we just did more for people. Okay? I wish that was easier for you to hear. But we need it. We need, we need to serve the Lord in this way. If you can't recall the last time you actually helped someone in need, someone who could do nothing in return for you, someone who really needed it, then tonight we really need to do some introspection.